You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. We have come to a point in the life of the United Methodist Church where the urgency of the gospel has been overshadowed and diminished by denominational conflict. For years now, the laity and the clergy of our churches have spent far too much time debating what should be fundamental and far too little time mobilizing for mission and ministry that is centered on and driven by the gospel. In vast regions across the country and in some places around the world, the beauty of the cross and resurrection has been forgotten. Confidence in the scriptures as the Word of God, trustworthy in every way, has been eroded. And the Lordship of Jesus Christ has been neglected. Those of us who are committed to remembering the Gospel and proclaiming the Gospel, to organizing the mission and ministry of the church around the Gospel, have devoted far too much time to internal battles that have taken over our attention and taken us away from our mission to our neighbors and to the nations. We've come to a point in which denominational bodies, boards of ordained ministries, We're responsible for determining the fitness of our clergy for ministry. And even entire annual conferences have resolved publicly to act without regard to our shared covenant. Indeed, to reject, in practice, our shared covenant. The majority of our council of bishops has resolved to disregard their vows of consecration. And the faithful bishops who remain have no power to maintain accountability. One bishop has publicly denigrated our Lord Jesus Christ and questioned his deity, suggesting that it's possible to make Jesus into an idol. You know as well as I do that only false gods can be idols. Another bishop, very recently, has undermined the trustworthiness of Scripture by saying publicly that he has always believed that we must adapt Scripture to fit our culture. We find ourselves at a point in which we need to hear the Apostle Paul's exhortation to Timothy in chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Remember the gospel. 
Remember the gospel. Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. And we find ourselves in a place where we have to decide whether we will be resolved in our commitment to the gospel. We have known for years that we would one day have to make difficult decisions. The crucial thing is to understand that the decisions we make are gospel decisions. Paul would have us embrace the reality that commitment to the gospel is non-negotiable for the church. And churches that forsake their commitment to the gospel won't be churches for long. You all have heard me preach for more than four years now. And you've probably noticed a slightly different tone as we've begun our time together this morning. I don't typically fill sermons with denominational conflict. The reason is because I don't want to get distracted from the gospel. But we're entering into a season where we need to apply the reality and claims and standards of the gospel to where we are. And we need to do it corporately, and we need to do it explicitly, and we need to be reminded that our commitment to the gospel is non-negotiable. So Paul tells Timothy what it means to be committed to the gospel. Like the undercurring movement all through 2 Timothy is remember the gospel, remember the gospel, remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead, descended from David, remember the gospel. And all through, as he calls Timothy to remember the gospel, he's also offering him wisdom and instruction on how to apply the gospel and appropriate throughout the life of the church. And at the beginning of 2 Timothy, we get a sense of like, what do gospel committed people do and how do they behave and how do they act and what sort of practices do they engage in? And the thing he calls for, the thing Paul calls for, the thing he's after is that people who are committed to the gospel teach other people to what? To be committed to the gospel, don't they? People who are committed to the gospel teach the next generation. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, verse 2. You then, my child, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strong because the gospel will face opposition. There will be people who become apathetic. There will be people who are... Who are adverse and opposed to the gospel out loud and publicly. But be strong, he says to Timothy. And verse 2, what you have heard from me through many witnesses, entrust to faithful people. Timothy, if you're going to be a gospel-centered pastor, and if you're going to lead a gospel-centered church, you can't neglect taking the thing that I've given you, the gospel and all of its implications, and offering them to faithful people who can teach others also. Now that works at multiple levels. It works at the level of the ordained ministry. Timothy has been set aside by Paul for ordained ministry in this community. 
And he expects him to order the life of the ministry by finding faithful people who can teach and who can instruct, who can lead Sunday school classes and facilitate a Wednesday night group or, or, or a Bible study on Monday morning or Tuesday afternoon, right? You've got to find those folks. You have to equip them. You've got to give them this trustworthy message so that the gospel, because if we love the gospel, we want other people to love the gospel. If we know the freedom that comes in Christ and how the gospel is a, a means of grace, how it's the power of God for salvation, don't you want other people to experience that? And if we don't entrust it to faithful people, we lose it. It's gone. And so at the level of the ministry of the ordained, it is essentially crucial for the health of the church to find faithful people who are unswervingly committed to an ancient gospel about a crucified Savior who is now the resurrected Lord, who isn't far off away, uninterested, and just kind of hanging out somewhere beyond the blue, but who is deeply involved in the mission of the church, who reigns in heaven and rules on earth, and is mobilizing His people to bring the knowledge and experience of His perfect love, His perfect forgiveness, His perfect restoration to our neighbors and to the nations. If we don't offer that to one another and to people who come through the door, and if we don't identify people to lead our churches, ordain clergy, if we don't make sure our seminaries are places where faithful people get a true gospel, forget the health of the church. Forget being an, a, an organization blessed by God for the sake of the mission. Forget it. So it's crucial in the next season of Methodism that we are the kind of people, that we are the kind of church that we build a denomination that is fundamentally committed to making sure our pastors are gospel people. It also operates at the level of the laity. Notice that Paul doesn't make that distinction here. He tells Timothy, the things you've learned from me through many witnesses and trust to faithful people. So I want to apply that in two places. Faithful pastors and faithful laity. Because it doesn't work <laughs> if the pastor is the only one doing the teaching. We have maybe a dozen or more groups that meet around here during the week. And there's no possible way that I could handle that by myself. Thanks be to God for members of the congregation who put in some extra time to study, to learn, to love the gospel and teach the gospel and teach the Bible and apply it. And so it's crucial that, that healthy churches, gospel churches, are constantly looking for people who we can entrust that sort of like stewardship of the gospel to. Our discipleship path helps us with that, doesn't it? Discipleship path, step one, worship. Step two, connect. Step three, serve. Right? We gather on Sundays to worship the Lord. But just worshiping the Lord for an hour on Sunday doesn't really make a particularly strong or mature Christian. And so we want to connect in groups. A lot of you are in band meetings. A lot of you come on Wednesday nights and gather with a group to, to learn and pray for each other and care for each other. Some of you meet on Monday mornings, other times during the week. But that connection, drawing together with other members of the body of Christ, takes us 
more deeply into our shared life and more deeply into the life of Jesus through His Spirit. But again, right, like that's not enough either. It's, it's essential, but it's not enough. That's step three where we say, I'm going to serve in some capacity. I'm going to take food to the homeless shelter later this afternoon. Or I'm going to gather with, with uh, and go serve at first choice like some of you do. I'm going, to, I'm going to go on the mission trip. I'm going to find a way to serve inside the walls. I'm going to take out the trash on Sunday morning. Somebody want to get the trash after we get done today. It's back there. It's going to need it. Like, we gotta, like, it doesn't work if there's not that self-denial. Like, I'm going to carve out some time. It's okay if I get to lunch a little late because somebody needs to take out the trash on Sunday morning. That's, what Jesus, that's the minimum Jesus meant when he said, take up your cross and follow me. He meant a great deal more. But at the very, very least, a little bit of, hey, I'm going to give a few minutes to serve in this capacity. Inside the walls, outside the walls. Right? And so that discipleship path helps us grow mature believers. People who, who are dedicated to worshiping God. People who are dedicated to offering themselves to other members of the community. To, to nurture and care and bear one another in love. And maybe get in our business a little bit for, for love of one another in Christ. And, and offer some, hey, I see some red flags in your life. And, and I'd love to help you walk in this season in faithfulness. And then that third step, Right? We know we're growing up in Jesus. We know, we know that we are growing in Christian maturity when the fruit of the Spirit shows up and we're beginning to serve and offer ourselves in different ways to different people. And if a church isn't doing that, and people aren't growing up and embracing the call of Christ to be a faithful person who offers the gospel to the next generation, like that, nobody gets left out of that. Parents, you got the next generation in your house. Have you entrusted the gospel to them? Are they learning to apply the lordship of Jesus Christ to every aspect of their, share, of their life? So what do faithful people do? What do gospel people do? Gospel people teach the next generation. And that's how the church grows. That's how the church spreads, that's how the church thrives, and that's how the church avoids apostasy, falling away and becoming a not church. Commitment to the gospel is non-negotiable, friends. Non-negotiable. To help that, Paul gives us some images of what faithfulness looks like, doesn't he? One of my favorite things about Paul is how he mixes his metaphors. He does this in all the letters. 1 Thessalonians, you get all kind of mixed metaphors. 2 Timothy, mixed metaphors. Are you a soldier, a farmer, or an athlete? Pick one. Like Whichever one resonates, that's the one you can have. But he's going to throw them all out there. But they help us see this in different ways. Here again what he has to say. Share in suffering. This is verse 3. Share in suffering like a good soldier of Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus. No one serving the army gets entangled in everyday affairs. The soldier's aim is to please the enlisting officer. What's he asking for there? He's asking for single-minded devotion, isn't he? Right? If you're on the battlefield and you're wondering about what you're going to have for breakfast tomorrow, chances are you're not paying attention to your mission. If you're not singly devoted to the one objective, then you're not a good soldier. You endanger yourself. You endanger your battalion brothers at arms. 
And so what's he calling for? He's calling for the single-minded devotion. He's calling for Christians to put their eyes on Jesus and be singularly offered to him without divided hearts, without, without saying, well, you know, I don't have time for Jesus today. I don't have time for that this week. And we don't ever really say that, but our actions speak louder than words, don't they? And the way that we choose to use our time tells us whether or not we are singularly devoted to Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that you stop doing everything and go in your closet and pray 24-7. It does mean that every moment, every day, is, does Jesus have my heart? Like in the way that I engage my kids. And I know that's tough. It can be very, very difficult. In the way that I engage my colleagues. Does Jesus have my single, singly divided attention? That doesn't make sense. Single attention, undivided attention in that moment. The way I engage as a pastor. Does Jesus have my single, undivided attention in my work? Gospel faithfulness takes single-mindedness. We were to ask John Wesley, he'd say, you got one thing to do, folks. So spend and be spent in this. Offer them Christ for the salvation of their souls. To the extent that we get distracted, this should be a red flag for all of us. Does the Lord Jesus Christ have my undivided attention? Second metaphor, Paul uses as an athlete. Verse 5, in the case of an athlete, no one is crowned without competing according to the rules. It gives us image of rigorous discipline. You know what athletes do to be prepared to compete. Diet. Workout, skill training, being in a competitive situation again and again and again. And professional athletes offer their full time, and Olympic athletes train for decades, 40 plus hours a week. And Paul says, You take that kind of devotion and understand that it's just a glimpse of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You take the kind of devotion that someone who wants to compete in the Olympics offers to that goal, and you offer it to Jesus. With rigorous discipline, in the means of grace, worship, prayer, serving, sacrament, offering ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ to work in the normal ways. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. He's basically been making grown-up Christians for the same way for thousands of years. Paul says you've got to be like an athlete who is rigorously disciplined. You, you farmers, your ears might have perked up when you heard verse 6. The thing he's asking for here. It's patience, isn't it? Patience, because you 
plant in one season and you harvest in another. Gospel faithfulness takes patience. <laughs> because we know that growing up in Jesus doesn't happen overnight. And we know that our neighbors and the nations don't convert overnight. And we know that we face adversity and we know that we face opposition from inside, from outside. And trusting Jesus patiently, doing the right thing, the next thing, faithful steps in the same direction again and again and again for year after year after year and decade after decade. The Great Commission, the Kingdom of God, is a long-term project. And we get easily discouraged when things don't go our way for the short term. We get discouraged in this denominational conflict, don't we? Because what's the way out? And how much is it going to cost? And why are we in this debate? And it seems so obvious. And, 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 and we could be tempted just to kind of get cynical and hardened. But cynicism and hardness are antithetical to the Gospel. And that's precisely what your enemy wants. Apathy towards the church, apathy towards the mission, and apathy towards Jesus. Commitment to the gospel looks like a patient farmer waiting on God to bring fruit. It also involves enduring hardship at times. Verse 8, remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead, a descendant of David. That's my gospel, for which I suffer hardship. Implicitly, you have Jesus suffering hardship. You may be reading this, you may be thinking, I thought, like, he just mentioned the resurrection and this descended from David thing. We'll get to that in just a second. Why didn't he mention the cross? Like, that's the heart of the gospel. And it is. But a declaration of being raised from the dead carries with it being dead, doesn't it? And so when Paul wants to summarize the gospel, he puts the emphasis on victory over death and the lordship of Jesus. That's what the Davidic descendant thing is about. Right? David was the great paradigmatic of, uh, uh, king of Israel, and, and it was to him that God made a covenantal promise that one of his descendants would sit on his throne forever. That has been fulfilled in Jesus. He sits on the throne now. He reigns over all things. The gospel is the declaration that the crucified and risen Jesus is Lord over all things. And the thing about the declaration of the Lordship of Jesus is that everybody who wants to be Lord over themselves gets kind of abrasive when they hear it, including us. This isn't just their problem. This is, this is our problem. Because Christian maturity and an increasing commitment to the gospel means, Jesus, are there places in my life that aren't surrendered to your lordship? Like, am I holding something back from you? Am I not singly devoted in some capacity and in some part of my life? And so Paul calls me, he says, like, if you want to be faithful, if you want to be the church, the gospel is non-negotiable, and that means knowing the content of the gospel. And not just knowing it, but being courageously committed to it 
out of a deep and abiding conviction. Jesus Christ died. Jesus Christ has been raised. Jesus Christ is Lord. And then how does that apply in every aspect of our shared and individual lives? All Christianity, friends, this is not an overstatement, everything about the Christian faith is an appropriation of the gospel to some aspect of our shared or individual life. Like think of the gospel as the hub and think of the applications as the spokes. Right? We don't talk about anything. Marriage, work, ethics, parenting, meetings, recreation, all of it is held together. Remember the gospel. Jesus Christ, resurrected from the dead, descended from David, which means he is Lord over all things and there is no feature of anyone's life that is not under his sovereign authority the question is whether we acknowledge his authority or not we are in the mess we are in in the united methodist church Because far too many United Methodists have abandoned the Lordship of Jesus. At the end of the day, it's not about marriage. It's not about bishops. It's not, not about who gets ordained. It's about who calls the shots. And his name is Jesus. And we are where we are because we have to decide whether we will be resolved to be gospel people. Paul says the gospel is something for which he suffers hardship, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. And this is the place where things get a little counterintuitive, isn't it? Because we might think, you know, like, like we gotta, we got to avoid hindrances, right? If Paul, the great apostle, is bound and imprisoned, like he's not out there planning churches. But Paul understands, and he wants us to understand, that even in the face of adversity, even when it looks like the, like, like, like the, the pain and the, the, the hardship is coming down on us, that God is at work providentially and sovereignly in the midst of that, to bear fruit for his kingdom. The gospel is not chained. It is unchained. You could lock every believer in the world up and throw all of us in a pit and throw away the key. The gospel is not chained. It's not chained. And so Paul says, endure hardship. And I'll tell you, friends, if there's a word that has begun to characterize the conflict in our denomination, it's hardship. It's not as bad as it could be. It's worse in other places. Many of us who desire to be faithful and intend to form a new denomination 
are daily maligned in public as being unfaithful to our ordination vows. Daily. Churches who intend to leave are going to have to write some very big checks. Many churches will stay because they're unwilling to endure the financial burden of faithfulness. Paul says, commitment to the gospel is non-negotiable. And gospel people endure hardship. Whether it's reputation or resources, or in Paul's case, imprisonment. Gospel commitment takes courage, doesn't it? The good news is the Lord Jesus Christ offers all things to his brothers and sisters, including courage and the courage of conviction. And we've got to ask, what do we love more? Do we love the gospel more or our reputation? We will be called names, bigots, haters, unfaithful, vow breakers. Or do we love the gospel more or our resources? These are the questions before us. I'm grateful because I think I know where we are. I'm grateful because I believe that this church was deeply committed to a path of faithfulness for years before I ever walked through the door. I've had some conversation with some of our lay leaders this week as we kind of prep for our discernment meeting, and, and one of the things that we kind of reflected on is that we're not here because of me. In reality, I'm probably here because you're, you were already committed to be faithful. And you went to the bishop and said, we want somebody who matches our convictions. And the bishop in his kindness brought us together in that way. Because there's a shared vision. And the Lord is at work. So it was encouraging to me to find out that you all were committed to gospel faithfulness long before I ever even heard of Hope Hole. <laughs> long before I ever set foot on this property. And long before we came to the decisions that we'll make in the months to come. Love for the gospel. Commitment to the gospel. Non-negotiable. Non-negotiable. And if we prioritize our reputation and our resources, it doesn't matter what the sign out front says. We won't be a church for long. And in the next few years, there will be a lot of buildings that have church on the sign out front but the marks of the church will not be present inside the walls. I have no intention of being one of those churches.
Paul calls those who love the gospel to persevere. Verses 11 to 13, we get this saying that he quotes. He says, hey, here's a saying. It's a, maybe a part of an early Christian creed or maybe a piece of a hymn. We don't know that, but he quotes it like somebody else said it first and offers it to Timothy and now to us. And notice the shape of this and how, how it reflects the gospel and how it calls believers to embody the gospel. Hear what he says in verse 11. The saying is true. If we've died with him, we will also live with him. Remember when he said, remember the gospel a moment ago? What was the first part? Christ died and Christ has been raised. If we die with Him, we're raised with Him. So the calling is, like whatever's true of Jesus, whatever's true of the Gospel, is to be embodied by the people of God. Like followers of Jesus embody His death and resurrection. And then the next passage, if we endure, we will also reign with Him. And we're reminded that when He said, hey, remember my Gospel, what was that second bit about David? Descended from David, and what does descended from David assert? It asserts that Jesus is the true King. And the promise is that those who endure will reign with the King. And this is the image we get of the new creation in the book of Revelation. And, and this is the claim we get in Romans chapter 8. That those who belong to Jesus, those who endure with Him, those who love Him more than they love the world, will one day be given thrones and will reign over the new creation alongside the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the biblical vision of the future. Christ comes and frees the world from bondage to decay, Romans 8, and gives all things to His brothers and sisters. And they will reign with Him, the Revelation says. What's true of Jesus is embodied in His people. It's embodied in His church. And so the first half of the saying is this kind of positive encouragement, positive exhortation. If we've died with Him, if we've denied ourselves, if we've taken up our cross, if we've said no to the flesh and no to the self and yes to Jesus, yes to Jesus, yes to Jesus, if we have died with Him, we'll, we'll live with Him. Together, just a few minutes ago, with one voice we said, I believe in the resurrection of the dead. Here's the verse where that comes from. This is why we believe it. If we've died with Him, we will live with Him. It's a good promise. If we endure, we will reign with Him. And then he flips it in the last couple verses we read together. It gets kind of negative, almost kind of scary. Paul says, if we deny Him, He will deny us. If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. And here's the call to persevere. Here's the call to steadfastness, to courage, enabled by the Spirit of God, by grace. Again and again and again, the Scriptures warn that Jesus must be taken seriously. 2 Timothy 2, 12 resonates with Romans 11, 17 through 25. And Paul warns the Romans, don't become proud, he might cut you off. You don't approach the king of all creation 
with here's my agenda, here's what I expect. And if you don't play the rules, play the game my way, I'll do my own thing. Don't expect Jesus to get down off his throne and beg us to stay. John chapter 6, Jesus was teaching on the sacraments. He said, if you want to live, you've got to eat my body and drink my blood. He's talking about the Eucharist, the bread, the broken bread and the, the cup. And some of the ones around him said, that's a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And they left. And then Peter walked up to Jesus, maybe a little timidly. <laughs> What's up, Jesus? Like, I thought we were doing church growth here, and like, you're running people off. This is hard. This is tough. Like, how are we supposed to hand, like, handle you? And Jesus answered, are you going to go with them? Jesus doesn't negotiate the gospel. He doesn't compromise the gospel. He doesn't say, well, you know, we can kind of shave off the hard edges if that makes you happy. That doesn't mean that we become abrasive or unkind or uncharitable. We declare the gospel with joy in our hearts and smiles on our faces because Jesus is perfect love. But we don't negotiate the gospel. And when we're opposed because of the gospel... We persevere. And we take seriously passages of Scripture that say if we deny him, he'll deny us. Jesus actually said that in the Gospels. Not trying to scare anybody. Not trying to send you home all nervous or anything. The call of Scripture and the requirement of the Gospel Singular devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not something you clock out of. I'm on board with Jesus on Sunday, but man, I got a lot going on on Monday. Commitment to the gospel is non-negotiable. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God that the Lord Jesus Christ loves us enough to shed His blood for us. He loved us and gave Himself for us. And He offers every grace to persevere. He offers every grace to endure. Every grace. And He calls us to embrace faithfully the thing that He offers. Despite opposition, despite hardship, despite the cost. The church is called to embrace and embody the gospel regardless of the consequences. And we have come to a point where it's time to make the decision. The can has been kicked down the road, you've heard it said, for years now. That day is gone. The can will not be kicked again. The question for us is simple. Will we continue to allow the forces of institutional conflict to distract us from our first love? 
or will we do what is necessary to ensure that we and our children are singly focused on the gospel and the Lord that the gospel announces and the mission to which he's called us. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.